I don't think I'm the only one, but for a lot of us, we're always thinking about the next thing, right? Anybody else always thinking about the next thing? Some of you sitting here now might already be thinking about lunch right after this, if you're like me. <laughs> Which is the great thing about speaking on a day like today is you're in control of how quickly you get to go eat lunch. So it's a wonderful position to be in. But you're thinking maybe of what's next in your life. Certainly maybe what's next today. Maybe you have some plans tonight. Maybe you're hosting something at your house. Maybe you've got family coming in town or family leaving town or something or you've got a trip ahead of you. We're kind of constantly in the back of our mind working on what's next. And this is very prominent when we're younger because we're looking to that next milestone in life, whatever that's going to be. Like when you're out of middle school and into high school or maybe when you're out of high school and you're off in college. And then it's when you're finally out of college and you're in the real world working. And then when you're working, it's like, Oh my goodness, can I please go back to college or to high school? But you're always looking forward to the next sort of thing. But what we don't often think about very much is what's last. We think about what's next, but we don't very often think about what's last. What we want to do in the time that we have now is take a look at what's last for the church. Not what's next, but what's last. What we're going to find out in this passage is the church is all growing together. We're all fit together for a very real purpose. We're all headed somewhere together. We're not just headed somewhere loosely as connected individuals to our final thing, and it's just about me. We're headed somewhere together. And the idea of being fit together is not one that disappears on that last day. It's one that will continue at least according to our text today. You might say, well, why should we spend so much time talking about the final point? Because what we're going to do is go through each of these things in verse 13. We'll talk about the unity of the faith, the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. We'll talk about mature manhood and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You might say, why take so much time to discuss these things and what they are in Scripture? It's for a very simple reason that we'll return to as we close this morning. It's simply this. Your final destination determines the path that you will take right now. Your final destination determines the path that you'll take right now. For example, if after church today you were headed over to Atlanta, maybe you're headed to Atlanta for something, you've got family to visit or a business conference or something like that. Anyway, you're headed to Atlanta when service is over. If you know Atlanta is your final destination, at least for that trip, hopefully not for your time on earth, but if it's at least your final destination for that trip, then when you leave the church building, you're most likely going to turn right out onto the highway, and then when you get to 20, you're going to go towards Atlanta. You're not going to turn towards downtown Birmingham, because it's the wrong way. Your final destination absolutely determines the path that you're going to take now. And so your theme for the year is being fit together, and certainly our topic for today is Victory Sunday, thinking about the victory that's already been won by God, both of those things are wrapped up in verse 13. Especially the way that we will be fit together once we do achieve that final victory in Christ. And the first thing you see here in the text is the unity of the faith. And here's what's very interesting to me. We've read this passage twice this morning already, but notice here that he says, We have been given... The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers were going to be building up the saints for the work of ministry 
until we reach this point. So whatever this final point is for the church, we know that when we hit this point, the way the church operates as we know it will cease. We will no longer be given these kinds of gifts of the apostles, the prophets, the shepherds and teachers, the evangelists, because essentially we'll have reached the purpose that we're trying to reach. We will have reached that final goal. And typically when we think of the final goal, we think of maybe what eternal life is like in God. We, th we emphasize joy. We emphasize maybe that there's no more sorrow, no more death, no more pain. And all those things are certainly true. Nothing you read in Ephesians will tell you, actually, no, that's not the case. It will tell you that certainly that is the hope that we're looking forward to. But here in verse 13, you find, especially with this first point, the first two points, actually, the unity of the faith, the place that we are headed, the final point is it necessarily involves the entire community of believers. It does not just involve us as individuals. We will still be united as a community. And if you want to go ahead and be turning to Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to take a look at that in just a moment. Now here's what's interesting for all these things in the book of Ephesians. At the beginning of chapter 4, you'll find out that we already have as the church some type of unity. He says, be eager to maintain the unity, in the, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So he wants us to be able to hang on to maintain to the unity that we already have. But in verse 13 of the same chapter, he says unity of faith is something that you're trying to attain to. So there is a sense that we have partial unity now, certainly, and we all are enjoying that today. We all would say we are unified here today under the name of Christ in the effort of reaching the world and serving alongside God for the purposes that he has for humanity and that he has had for us from the very beginning. As you read in Ephesians 2, we have been created for good works which God prepared beforehand. We're all united in that, but we do recognize that this unity is not perfect and complete just quite yet. But what we see is that at the final day, we will all totally be united together, certainly in faith. And you see this idea of continued faith and growth in faith all throughout Scripture. You see it in Philippians 1, where Paul literally says, you are meant to grow in your faith. In 1 Thessalonians 3, though, there's a very interesting phrase. Paul says that he and his co-workers are praying that they can get to Thessalonica so they can fill up what is lacking in the faith of the Thessalonians. They already have faith, but there's still something that's lacking. There's something that's not quite complete. And Paul says, we are praying that we can come so we can get you closer to that complete destination that you have. But as we look in Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to find something that I think is striking. Notice in Hebrews chapter 4, we're talking about the Israelites. And if you want to look back in chapter 3, starting in verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known in my, my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. And so the point that the writer of Hebrews is going to make here is going to say, Listen, today, as long as you can hear the word of God, do not harden your hearts against God. Open your hearts to God's word. Submit to him, obey him in loving obedience, 
Don't be like the ones among the group who hardened their hearts and who would not submit themselves to the will of God. So we get down to chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should have seemed to fail to reach it. For the good news came to us just as to them, but their message, the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And make no mistake, there is a day coming when we will be united by faith completely with all who listen. And that day of victory is closer today than it was yesterday. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 9, we read that we are going to obtain the outcome of our faith or the completion, the final product of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So we are headed to a place where as a group, we will be completely unified in our faith. In the faith, our faith shall become sight as we sing pretty often. But notice the simple fact here to begin with that we will all be still together. And as we reflect upon this for just a moment, if that is the final destination where the church is headed, if the church is headed to a place where we will all have perfect and complete unity of faith, how does that change the way we carry ourselves in the church today? We'll speak more of this after lunch. How does that change the way that I serve in the church? How does that change the way I perceive of being unified with someone else in the church? Knowing that this is not just something to be held on to and something I have to suffer through until the end, and then I'll be free from having to deal with any sort of idea of being united together with God's people. Instead, if we view the unity that we have together now as an anticipation of the complete unity that we're going to have for all of eternity, I believe that just might change the way we view our involvement with a local congregation and the things maybe that we're excited and happy to do as a part of our involvement in a local congregation, and maybe it will encourage us to fit together. So you might have noticed in most of your translations in Ephesians chapter 4 that you have this idea of the unity of the faith, but then it's also careful to say, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So it's not unity of faith and then some separate knowledge of the Son of God. Unity applies to both of those things. So we will reach unity of the faith, but we will also reach unity in a complete knowledge of the Son of God. And certainly, knowledge and faith go together all throughout Scripture. We know that how can we believe in Him of whom we have never heard? So we have to have some knowledge to lead to faith. And we have those things in an incomplete way now. But make no mistake, in Scripture, knowledge is never just basic recognition. It is never just a collection of data to have on quick recall. Knowledge always includes deep conviction and experience based on that conviction. It has nothing to do with earthly wisdom or intelligence. And if we had more time in our class session before this, we would have been able to discuss 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul is very upset with the Corinthians, at least in that particular passage, 
because they're dividing themselves. Notice they are dividing themselves over the types of knowledge that they believe themselves to possess. Some of them say, well, my teacher is better than yours. I was taught by Paul. Who are you? You're taught by Apollos? I was taught by Paul. So I'm up here. You're taught by Apollos. Eh, you're somewhere down here. And Paul, you, you know what's in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, how can you guys say this? We are all of Christ. Don't be saying you're of Paul, you're of Apollos, you're of Peter. You are of Christ. We are all united together. And so he reveals to them that this wisdom that you think you have is actually foolishness because it's not real knowledge. So knowledge is never just a set of data to be recalled quickly. Your intelligence has nothing to do with this kind of knowledge. This kind of knowledge is something different. And it's something that we are always continuing to grow in. Let's back up in Ephesians. There's two passages in Ephesians we need to consult here. First, we need to read chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. So let's see. Paul says this prayer here at the beginning of the chapter, or at the beginning of the book. He's going to pray. You can get a, a glimpse into the mind of Paul what it is he wants for the members of the church here in Ephesus. What is it that he desires for them to do? What is it that he desires them to become? We say often that we wish that we might get a letter from Paul today that would explain to us what we should do and what we should become and solve all of our problems. Well, let's take a look at how Paul prays for these people in Ephesus. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now keep in mind, these people already know about the Son of God. So they already have, in the strictest sense, the knowledge of the Son of God. They, they know who he is, they know what he's done, they've committed their lives to him. And yet, Paul prays that they will continue to be filled with even more of this type of knowledge. So let's keep reading in verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? There's our victory that we're stressing today. In verse 19, it continues. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he was raised from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So you can see here that the knowledge that we have of the Son of God, we, we would be sorely mistaken to read Ephesians 4, 13 and say, oh, well, the unity, we already have unity of faith. We already have unity of the knowledge of the Son of God because we do in part but we absolutely do not have it to its fullness yet. You can rehearse the things listed in those verses in Ephesians chapter 1. How many of us, A, at least feel like we have the basic knowledge of all of those things, the depths, the riches of His greatness, the riches of His mercy and excellence, that's knowledge that for all of us remains yet to be completed. And we can see this clearly in chapter 3. Beginning in verse 14, a similar situation. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is made, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend, so the strength to know and to understand. We're still working on this theme of knowledge, so that we can have the strength to understand with all the saints, not to just understand just one of us or two of us, but for everyone together to understand something. What is it? The breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So our knowledge here has nothing to do with just data. It's not a reading exercise and how much can you memorize. That certainly leads us closer. But it is a deep understanding of what is the height and the depth of the love of Christ that, watch this, surpasses all knowledge. (laughs) So we cannot reach the completion there. And what's interesting is that the mature Christian throughout Scripture... The mature Christian recognizes that our final destination is not reached on this side of eternity. You might say, well, that's just common knowledge, but sometimes we act like it is. Sometimes we act like we've already reached unity of faith, unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. For example, any time that we deem it, well, maybe not necessary to join together, to encourage one another to remain faithful. If you want to flip back to Hebrews chapter 3, remember we read in chapter 4, the problem is they're not united by faith. There's a group that's not united by faith with those who believe. If you back up in chapter 3, around verses 12 to 14 to 16, he says we need to be encouraging one another as long as it's called today. We need to all hang on to that faith that we had at the beginning so we don't slowly drift away. And When you get to Hebrews chapter 10, he tells you, This is why you don't need to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And we mention that all the time. We say we don't need to forsake the assembly. We need to show up when the doors are open. Why? Because we think we should, because we we want the numbers to be up. We want the numbers to be high. Hebrews is very clear. We show up because if we don't, how can we continue to stay unified in faith? Because after all, the final place we're headed to is complete unity together in faith and if that's where I understand I'm heading at the end of all things why on earth would I when I'm trying to get to Atlanta instead take a turn towards Birmingham why would I decide well you know what on this particular day the church does not really need to be united together in faith today the church does not need my encouragement today so I'm not going to go Now, if you had a test and you had to put on paper, does the church need you to encourage the church to be unified as we're all reaching together towards this great victory and the great goal of the church? You would write, oh, well, yeah, yeah. Like, you know that in your head, but do we actually have the wisdom and the spiritual maturity to live that knowledge out in our lives? That's the kind of knowledge that we are looking for. And we reveal the true character, I think, of our hearts, many times in little decisions like this that we don't necessarily give a lot of weight to. We could mention more, but for the sake of time, we will not. So we're headed to unity of faith. 
We're headed to unity of knowledge of the Son of God. Then we're also headed to this interesting phrase here, to mature manhood. And as we mentioned in class this morning, you might have a translation that says, to a perfect man. There's an idea here of, in that word maturity, the idea is something that's complete. We're talking about completion. We've reached the end of it. It's been made perfect in the sense that it has been completed. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, you might remember that Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemies. And he says, I say to you, you must love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And at the end of that section, indeed the end of the chapter, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's the same term. You must be complete. You must be mature. You must have this sort of character, this complete character that Jesus is building in the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to be called sons of your Father, you must imitate Him, which we will see in the phrase, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But notice in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul, I think we would all recognize as a mature Christian, would we not? I believe all of us would recognize that Paul is mature in his faith. He has reached maturity, and you might even be tempted to say, you can't get much more mature than Paul is, but look what he says in verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained this, which in verse 11 is the resurrection of the dead. We're talking about that great victory that we have in Christ. Not that I've already obtained that, or am already perfect. The same term. But he says, I am pressing towards this every single day. I'm forgetting what's behind me. That includes my successes. That includes my failures. I'm forgetting the things behind me, and I'm pressing on towards what's ahead of me. So even Paul recognizes that he's not, he's not complete. He's not mature in, it, in the most complete sense yet. We understand now that since we're headed for this kind, this is what we're trying to be. This is what we're building towards. It certainly would be nonsensical to behave in ways that would lead us further and further away from that in the present, right? So when you're in school, for example, and we've got lots of guys down here in school. So you guys are in school. Let's say a major goal of your time in school is to graduate. Some of you might could care less. You're just, you know, you, you don't like school anyway. But some of you maybe. <laughs> your major goal is to graduate school. So you view at the end of this, your time in school is going to be complete. You will reach completion of your high school years. If that is your main goal, you don't find too many students in high school with this type of goal that are constantly laying out of class, not studying for exams, pretty much doing all the things that would not lead them to completion of their high school career. Now, sure, we might have moments of weakness here and there, but you're not going to find them characterized by the things that would lead them further and further away from their goal. We all recognize that as common sense, and yet, as we reflect on our final goal as the church together, as we reflect on this great victory that we have, are we taking the paths in life that are leading us closer to that completion and fulfillment? Or are we taking paths in life that are leading us further and further from something like that? So we're pressing on to completion, mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
In chapter 1, verse 23, we find out that the church, in some ways, actually functions already as the fullness of Christ. He speaks to the church and he says, this is the church which is the fullness of Christ. So Christ is meant to be completely represented by the church in every way. And we would have a lot to say about that, certainly, if we have more time. But as we come up to the end of our time here, let's consider chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, we read about measuring up to the stature of the fullness of Christ. And what exactly that means certainly is worth more discussion than we had time to give to it today. We at least know that it means we don't actually become Christ in the literal sense because we know that Jesus is, is God and we know that in the resurrection we don't become God. It's not as if God is three now and will be uh, made up of all of us plus more in the resurrection. We don't, we don't reach the status of God, but in some very real ways we are meant to fill up, we're meant to attain to the height or to the stature of everything that Christ is and everything that Christ stands for. And this is not just something in Ephesians, it is all throughout the entire New Testament. So as we read, if we skip to chapter 5 actually, notice what you have in verse 1. Be imitators of God. We are meant in a real way to reflect who God is. You remember Genesis chapter 1, right? When God creates humanity, something very unique happens for humanity. Humanity alone is given the task to fill the earth and subdue it. Everything else is called to multiply and fill the earth. Only humanity is called to subdue the earth. And only humanity is made in the image of God. In the likeness of God. Now, does that mean that God has you know, a head and two arms and two legs and hair and all this kind of stuff? Well, no. We understand that we're reflecting the image of God in a different way. And in the end, we are going to measure up to the completion of what we were intended to be from the beginning. So when you read in Ephesians 2, God has made these good works for us beforehand that we should walk in them. None of this is anything new. It's from the very beginning in creation. God makes us to be in his image. And now at the final day, we will be the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And in the meantime... We're not just propping our feet up and saying, well, I believe in Jesus. I'm going to try to do a few good things. And in the end, I will be the image of God all throughout Scripture. The moment of conversion, our baptism, begins a new life. We die to the old man of sin. And we are alive in a new kind of living modeled after, guess who? Christ himself. Baptism, make no mistake, is a resurrection here and now from that life of sin and death. We're raised in Romans 6. We are already raised to walk in the newness of life. And then we live in a way that anticipates the completion of that. So when we pray things like your kingdom come, your will be done. This is not just something off into the future. This is something right now. And you might say, well, when I'm resurrected and when I'm living with God for eternity, then all these things will be made perfect and complete. And as we talk about the final destination today, that is no excuse to prop our feet up and say, well, one day I'll reach this. And in the meantime, I guess I'll just hang around until I do. We are meant to live in a way that it is beginning to complete the process now. We must be living in such a way that we are beginning to experience these realities in part today. 
as we anticipate their completion in the future. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, you find that we are already the temple of God, but in some key ways we are still being built into a dwelling place for God. In our verses that we're reading today, you find that even though we are meant to be the fullness of Christ, we are still growing towards that which is the head. So we don't have this completion yet. The completion is still waiting on us in the future. But the question now, the question I believe of the day today, if this is our final goal and our great victory is to be united together in these ways of perfect harmony, harmony of faith, harmony of knowledge, we're reaching this place of complete spiritual maturity we're going to fulfill that image of God that we had all the way back from Genesis if that's where we're heading the question for you right now is what will you do today what will you do to reach closer to that goal today for some of us maybe even right now we already mentioned that from Romans 6 baptism is the inauguration of this new life. It's the way that we have access to the saving power of the blood of Jesus. It's the moment in which we commit ourselves to Christ. It's the moment in which that faith becomes action and the faith is completed by action. It's the moment in which we come into contact with the healing power of Christ and we are raised to walk in this new kind of life that anticipates the complete resurrection. It's the moment in which we commit ourselves to be more loving now in every way that we can be as we anticipate being completely and perfectly loving as God in the resurrection. It's the time when we begin in a new way this project of, being, of forming ourselves by the grace of God and by the guidance of His truth into the very image of God Himself. And if that's not a project that you've taken on in your life at this point, as you sit here today, well then, as many of the writers in Scripture would tell you, you have missed it. You've missed what life is all about. There's a lot of shallow, cheap imitations out there of what life really is. There's a lot of cheap imitations. It looks like you might be able to find meaning in life through wealth, status, and any form of pleasure, whatever it might be. There's different things we get sold every day as this is where life is. But Jesus gives us a very difficult teaching. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves instead treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So another way we could ask the same question this morning is, where is your heart? Are we anticipating the things of heaven? Are we indeed investing in the things of heaven now? Or are we distracted by, well, the cheap imitations of what real life is, as Jesus calls the earthly treasures? Because however much money and status we accumulate, Moth and rust will destroy, and thieves will break in and steal. We will lose it. We will eventually lose it. But there's a hope that we cannot lose, and it's the great victory that we have in Christ. 
So if you're here this morning and you have not yet taken on that project, you've not yet committed yourself to God, to the ways of God, to fulfill the intended purpose of all of human existence, period, why not? What's keeping you back from that? You might have a reason, maybe to delay your commitment to Christ today, but I can absolutely guarantee you that it is not a good reason. call of Christ. Or maybe you're here this morning and as you've been living and striving for these kinds of things, these things are not easy. It's not an easy task to live in these types of ways. You need the encouragement that only the church can offer to you. Well then, we're about to sing a song in a moment. And my hope and prayer is that you will not let this opportunity pass you by. Why not take advantage of this time that you have right now why not go ahead and walk down the path that leads you to the victory that we've discussed this morning as we sing together?